0: Okay, we are in Hebrews chapter 9, we're starting Hebrews chapter 9 today, and I'm going to start reading Hebrews chapter 9 verse 1. Now the first covenant had regulations for divine worship and, earth, and the earthly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were lamb stands and a table and sacred bread, this is called the holy place. Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle which is called the holy of holies having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the, of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. <clears throat> but of these things we cannot speak in detail. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests were continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. So remember what is happening in the book of Hebrews is that there are Jews that are living around Jerusalem in about 68 AD, and they are uh, undergoing severe persecution. They have not yet had martyrs amongst them, amongst their own group, but they have had severe persecution, and many of them are thinking about going back under Judaism in order to spare themselves the persecution, and thinking that once the persecution ends, that then they can go back into Christianity and the writer here is telling them, no, that's not an option. You can't do that. Because if you go back under uh, uh, Judaism, you're going to die. And what he meant by death was not spiritual, but physical because then they would end up back in Jerusalem and the 70 AD judgment was very close to coming. He didn't know the exact time, but he knew it was close to coming and everybody in Jerusalem was going to be surrounded by the Romans and they were going to be killed. So it is in that light that this is written and he is comparing the old covenant to the new covenant, the covenant to Moses versus the covenant that Jesus has has brought in. We've talked about the priesthood. Now we're going to talk about the tabernacle and the things of worship, the Old and the New Covenant. He says in verse 1, Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. So now he's going to start describing what the sanctuary was like. So when the Jews came out of Egypt under Moses' command, they built, according to God's way, a tabernacle. That was a movable church, in a sense, or a movable synagogue, Although the term synagogue was never used in the Old Testament and it was never even spoken about in the Old Testament. We see this word synagogues first in the New Testament. And Jesus honored synagogues in that he worked out of them many times. But they were never told to have synagogues which were little local buildings all around the country. They had a tabernacle which moved with them in the wilderness as they proceeded throughout the wilderness. Even though most of their time was not moving, it was stationary in the wilderness. And then they would go years before moving again, sometimes decades before moving again. So they had they had uh, uh, this tabernacle that was built. That was their place of worship, analogous to a church building. That but uh, a, a tent, a big tent, and uh, with lots of articles in it. He says, for there was a tabernacle in verse 2 prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstands and the table and the sacred bread. That is called the holy place. Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle which is called the holy of holies having a golden altar of incense and an ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was the golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded in the tablets of the, the tables of the covenant. So what he's doing is he's describing what that tabernacle was like. And after they rebuilt, they did away with the tabernacle. They built the temple in Jerusalem that was built by Solomon, the son of David. It had several different courts. There was there there were there was the court of the Gentiles. That's as far as the Gentiles could get. Gentiles being non-Jews. When there was a tabernacle, there was no area. There was no area for Gentiles. There was no area for non-Jews. After they built the temple, there was the court of the Gentiles. There was an outer area where non-Jews had to stay. Then there was was the outer court. The outer court was specifically for Jews. So you had the court of the Gentiles. As far as the tabernacle was concerned, no Gentiles were allowed near it. But as far as the tabernacle was concerned, there was an outer court. Only Jews could get into the outer court. Then there was an inner court where only Levites could go. So you had that one tribe of the twelve with the tribe of Levi. Only Levites could go and labor in that area. That was, that was called the inner court. Then when you went beyond the first veil, that was for priests only. So within the Levites, there was one family. That was the descendants of Aaron. They could only, they were the only ones allowed pass that first veil into, into that inner court. They were the only ones who could do that. So one family among the Levites could get in there. Then there was another veil, that second veil. Uh, no common priests were allowed in there. Only the high priest was allowed in there. And only once per year was he allowed in there. And that was called the Holy of Holies. So you had these several layers of getting close to God. If you wanted to get close to God, the only one who could actually move into God's presence was the high priest once the tabernacle was established. And that was that was the, the area of the Holy of Holies. So he's talking about how... how uh, uh, he says, For there was the tabernacle prepared, the outer one, that's beyond the first veil, where there was the lampstand and the tables of sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil... There was the tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having the golden altar of incense. Actually, the golden altar of incense, we read in the Old Testament, was outside that second veil. It was just outside the second veil because they had to tend to that. And they could only get into the Holy of Holies once a year. So they had to tend to it. So it was just outside, but it was considered as if it had been inside because the incense would pass through the veil into the Holy of Holies. But it was tended to from the outside. And then they would have there, they, 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 they had behind there, they, they had the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant. Within this Ark was a box. And in that box, they had three things. They, they had a golden jar, which had manna in it. So manna was something that God sent down from heaven. They had a sampling of that kept in a golden jar, kept in a jar, which is, which was in that in that box. They also had... The, the Aaron's rod which budded. So Aaron had a staff and, and there was, there was controversy at one point where other people said they had authority. So Aaron's staff actually budded and blossomed. And they said, yeah, indeed Aaron, he's a special guy. Everybody's staff was just a dead piece of wood and Aaron's rod budded. And they took that rod, they put it inside the ark as a testimony that the family of Aaron was special here. And, and then, Inside that were also the tablets, these tables, these pieces of rock, which God wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger upon. Those also went in the ark. Now, later on in the Old Testament, what you read about is you read the jar is missing, the jar of manna. So at some point, that jar was removed. And, uh, uh, you know, you're keeping a sampling of, of some sort of bread from heaven. I mean, at some point, that might not you know, sit very well, so they eventually remove that because you can read throughout the Old Testament and eventually there's no record of that anymore in the tabernacle. But he's got these different layers. What I want to focus upon today is this concept that there were these different layers of getting to God and how 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 the New Testament and Jesus in particular breaks all that down. Because many people will look at the Bible and say, oh, that is such a, a racist and sexist document not understanding at all how radical the New Testament is in freeing us from that within the culture in which it came. Remember, the New Testament comes to us from the culture in which there was Roman rule. In the days of the Roman Empire, and I looked up these numbers, it was up to 40% of the people living within the Roman Empire were slaves. So think about that four out of every 10 people were slaves. So almost half the people were slaves. We're not talking about a small number and we're not talking about just people of African descent being slaves. Get rid of that idea in your mind. Many of all of you, of your ancestors were slaves in the Roman empire. It went across all religions, all faiths, all colors, people they dominated. Many of them became slaves this was not an African thing. It was that, that, that many of our ancestors were slaves. Many of our ancestors were also slave owners. All right. So when you were in Rome, if you had six in 10 being not slaves, many of those being slave owners. So if you think, well, my, my ancestors weren't slave owners, well, wake up. They may well have been. If you're from the, if if you're descended from the subcontinent of Africa, there's a good chance that your ancestors were slave owners. There were slaves there too. Many of us, our ancestors, were slaves. The Jews, many of them, were enslaved within the Roman Empire. So this is what he's talking about. You had all of this going on in the Roman Empire. So you have to understand the context of this. The reason I want you to understand the context because there's this feeling these days. There's this feeling these days that we should judge all past generations by the culture in which we live today. Not even our 10-year-ago culture. Not in the year 2000. No, we have to judge everything by the year 2017. And this is a young mentality. I'm just telling you, this is a a, a millennial mentality. Or Or... or to think that we're gonna judge everything by the standards of today. We have to understand the context in which this came. So, this tabernacle was set up now as a temple in Jerusalem. When Jesus died on the cross, it says this. It says in verse 50 of Matthew 27 verse 50 says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil on the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rock split. When Jesus died, there was a veil between the, 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 the uh, uh, the first veil where only Levites could get in and the Holy of Holies. There was a veil. The veil wasn't just a piece of, uh, you know, sheer cloth that you could kind of see through. It was four inches thick. So you have something four inches thick and it's that thick and it was torn in two from top to bottom. If any person were going to tear that, they'd pick it up from the bottom and try to tear that from the bottom. But you'd need a knife to tear it. It's not something you could just tear. This was not cut with a knife. It says it was torn from top to bottom, meaning God initiated that tearing. He opened it up. The Holy of Holies was burst open when Jesus died on the cross. He opens this up to the Gentiles now. Jesus is the one who opened it up. He split that veil. And again, in Mark 15, verse 38, it says, when he breathed his last, the veil of the temple was torn in two. Again, from top to bottom, he tore that veil in two. And then in Romans chapter 10, verse 12, it says, for there is no distinction now between Jew And Greek, that means Jew and Gentile. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. The distinction now between Gentile and Jew that was clearly there in the Old Testament where he took a group of people and he set them apart. He got rid of that distinction. This was enormously liberating for that culture among the Jews, to think all of a sudden, now the Gentiles are going to be united with them, and they didn't even understand this. It wasn't until you go through the book of Acts, and in Acts chapter 15, they can't understand this, because you see in Acts chapter 9, you see Gentiles start coming to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Gentiles start coming to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. It was all Jews before that. The gospel is so Jewish. It was all Jewish. In Acts chapter 9, God intercedes And he goes and and Gentiles start getting saved. So many start getting saved that they don't know what to do with them. They think that the Gentiles first have to become Jews and then get saved. You know, think about that. You want to come to the Lord? Okay, we got to first, you got to become Jewish. And then you got to come to the Lord. That's how Jewish it was. And so in Acts chapter 15, they had a big council and they made a decision Many people arguing from either side, and they, they finally made the decision, no, they don't have to become Jews first. You can just go from being an unbeliever to coming to Jesus. All right? That makes it a lot easier, right? And, and uh, Or else, all of you guys would have to become Jews. All right? That's that's what he's talking about. This was tremendously liberating. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants heirs according to the promise. You think Jews have special promises upon them because of the blessings to Abraham? Well, right here it says, then you are Abraham's descendants heirs according to the promise. You become heirs according to the promise. He takes the Gentiles, and he's, as he says in Romans, he's grafted them into the kingdom of God. He's grafted them in. He's opened this thing up. Now, he says there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. Now, that does not mean that he does that, that there's no distinction between men and women. He's saying functionally we are different, but as far as it comes to being in Christ, as far as it comes to being in Christ, we are the same. We are all heirs according to the promise. This was enormously liberating. This was a document that was just amazing for its day. Amazing for its day. That someone would come in and change this. And remember, this little group of people, this little group of Christians that started to grow very rapidly, this small group of Christians that started to grow, was not in power. Not at all. And yet they were speaking with such liberality. It wasn't like they ran all the governments. No, this government was run by the Romans and they were about to really start persecuting this little group of Christians. But this is what they're talking about. This is radical stuff. So, so if you're the type who likes to be radical, this is the document for you. This is what you should be behind. This is the radical document. So then in, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, he talks more about this in more detail. This is what they're teaching within the Roman Empire. This is scary stuff. The Romans may want to come and shut this thing down. Within the context of the day, do you see how radical this document is? In Ephesians chapter? Chapter 2, verse 11, it says this, "...therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were uncircumcised by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at at that time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near." By the blood of Jesus, for he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both to one body to God through the cross and by by it having put to death the enmity. So, And imagine how radical this was to the Jews who had come into the kingdom of God. He's telling the whole Jewish kingdom as well. All these Gentiles are coming in. Like it or not, they're coming in. So radical was this document. Jesus demonstrated this even when he rose from the dead. It says clearly... In Mark 16, verse 9, now after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene. He first appeared to a woman. He appeared to a woman. This is totally radical. Why would you appear to a woman? She has no legal basis. And and women were subservient both in Jewish culture and in Roman culture. And he appears first to a woman. He is breaking down these barriers. Even in his lifetime, in Luke chapter 18, while he was alive, in Luke chapter 8, Luke chapter 8, it says his ministry in Luke chapter eight, verse three, his ministry was supported by wealthy women. It was wealthy women who were underwriting his ministry. Think about this. You got 12 guys, 13 in total, Jesus and all his disciples walking around. He had already taken them away from their fishing boats. He said, don't worry about that. How do they live? Well, you think, well, Jesus is just multiplying bread all the time. No, that, that's not how he's doing it. He did that a few times, but that was mainly for the masses. They paid for stuff. They had a money box. Remember, the Bible says that that uh, uh, Judas was in charge of the money box, and he used to pilfer it. One and, and uh, um, but they had a money box. Where'd the money come from? It says that there were wealthy women. He says, uh, uh, um, and Joanna in, in Luke eight, eight verse three, it says, and Joanna the wife of Chusa, Herod steward, and Susanna and many others who were contributing to the support out of their private means, who underwrote the ministry of Jesus when he was on earth. It was women. It was women. It says, so one of the women was a wealthy woman named Joanna, the wife of Chuza, Herod's steward. So that means someone who was in attendance with Herod. So Herod. So there was King Herod, his father, a really wicked guy who went and killed all the babies in Bethlehem and, and tried to have Jesus killed. He's already dead. And now his son... His son is, is, is ruling in a certain part and his steward who's going to be a rich guy. His wife is taking money and she's giving it to the, to, to, uh, Jesus's ministry. This happens in marriages. I have firsthand experience <laughs> with this. My wife takes our money, our money, and she gives it away all the time. She's doing, doing this all the time. And I can't say anything because if I say anything, it's just like, there's no peace in the home. So I just keep quiet. And, and, and the women rule in this. And this is exactly what Susanna was doing. Harris like, Harris steward, Chuza, is like, my goodness, the amount that she gives to this guy's ministry. This Jewish guy who's walking around all the time and talking about God, why do you keep giving money to him? This is what's happening. His ministry is supported by women. You don't see men giving to his ministry. Women are very often more keen to the needs that God has put before them, then are men. And they're the ones who are often the leaders in families in giving. It's the women working behind the scenes that are giving, generously giving. You see a whole cultural shift. I want to turn to the, the book of Philemon. The book of Philemon. So just before Hebrews is the book of Philemon. And you, you know for sure what chapter I'm in. Because Philemon only has one chapter, alright? So, so, so we are in Philemon and chapter one, there's only one chapter, and verse, and, and we're just gonna start reading from verse one. What's, what's happening in Philemon is this, is, is there is a slave named Onesimus. A slave named Onesimus, who probably is not, is not, uh, uh African by descent, just based on, on his name. But remember, 40% of the people in this society now are slaves, is what he's dealing with. Onesimus escapes from his master, Philemon, and he ends up with Paul. And he starts taking care of Paul. So this slave escaped from his master, and he goes, he starts taking care of Paul. And Paul really ends up liking this guy. Philemon, uh, 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 Onesimus, the slave, now comes to the Lord. So through Paul's ministry, he comes to the Lord, and he's just a tremendous guy. Now Paul says to him, you escaped from Philemon. You're going to have to go back. You're going to have to go back. You can't just rebel like that. But let me write a letter to him, your slave owner, Philemon, and just tell him what I think about slavery and what he ought to do. Now remember, this is a really radical document. This is what Paul thinks about slavery In a society where 40% of the people there are slaves, you want to get a society against you? Start speaking negatively about slavery in a society where 40% of the people are slaves. We're going to circle back in just a minute and bring it home to our lives about what shakes us a little bit to show us we're not quite as perfect as we think we are. Yeah, we're the only ones perfect in 2017. All other societies were bad. As far as us, we're good. Yeah, we'll circle back and we'll see how good we really are. To Philemon, he says, Paul, a prisoner of, of Jesus Christ, of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Afia, our sister and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's writing to Philemon and his wife. They are believers and they have a church in their home. These are church-going people. Yet they had a slave named Omnismus. Why did they have a slave? They couldn't have been good people. No, 40% of the people in that society had slaves. I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers because I hear of your love and the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus Christ and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in Christ Jesus. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. So look how he's appealing. He's appealing to him as a brother. He starts out by saying, let me tell you how blessed I am to know you. This is a great thing for us to learn. It's a great thing for us to learn that when we have to deal with a situation, if you can key in on something about the person that you're going you're gonna to deal with, rather than just they come into your office and boom, you blast them with it. Tell them, what is it I appreciate about you? You see what I mean? He starts the whole thing talking about how much I appreciate you, your love for the brethren, the church in your home. You're a great guy. He starts praising them. Remember this. When you have to deal with somebody, find something that you can first praise them about. It changes the whole tenor of the situation. Therefore, I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper. Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you since I am such a person as Paul, the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So Paul was in prison. This man Onesimus ends up there and is taking care of him. Onesimus is bringing this letter back. So Onesimus is coming back to Philemon and giving this letter from Paul. You know, he's probably about to, you know, have Onesimus whipped, but he bears this letter. Paul is in prison and he says, I'm writing to you. He says, I, as an apostle, can order you to do something. Order you to do this, but I'm not going to do this. I'm going to appeal to you because I have enough confidence in Christ in you. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. What does that mean? He has been birthed to the Lord in my imprisonment who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person. That is sending my very heart. He says, I love this kid. I'm sending to you my very heart, whom I wished to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel but without your consent i did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion but by your own free will in other words i could order you to do this but i want you to make a decision based upon your own free will for perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever no longer as as a slave but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this to you with my own hand. I will repay, not to mention to you, that you owe to me your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. So he's saying, Onesimus has become saved. Now he's a brother in the Lord. Yes, you are his slave owner, his rightful slave owner. But I'm asking you to release him. I'm asking you to release him. Because I have enough faith that you're going to do the right thing in Christ. He says, if he's stolen anything from you, if he owes you anything, take that out of my account. But let me remind you, you owe me your very life. In other words, you came to the Lord through me. There are people, men that, that led me to the Lord. Men that nurtured me in discipleship. They have asked me at times to go and to preach in certain situations, to do so. In a heartbeat, I will go and, and do this for them. I owe them. I owe them this. I owe them my very life. How could I say, well, you know, I'm kind of busy right now. Not to the people that poured themselves into me to disciple me. I would never say, oh, I'm too busy right now. I owe this to them. If their child needs help, I wouldn't neglect their child because of what their fathers did for me. I'll be there for their child as well. He says, I, you owe me your very life. He says, you want to charge, he owes you something, I'll pay it. Just let me know. I'm writing this with my own hand. I'll pay it. But just remember, if you want to charge me something, you owe me your very life. This is what he's saying. And he says, he's, he says uh, um, having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. In other words, when I get out of prison, I'm going to come back. I want to stay at your home. And, uh, and then he wishes them well. This is what Paul thought of slavery. He says, when you're in Christ, release this thing. Release it. Release him. And you say, well, why wasn't the Bible more forthcoming in this? How forthcoming would you like it to be when 40% of the people are slaves? You would change the whole economy if you had stood up and said, all slavery should be ended, period. We want them to do... There would be no Christianity today. It would have been wiped off the face of the map. So what he said to them, and he goes on and he speaks about this sort of thing in in, uh, in Colossians. He's, he's speaking about this. He's talking about being kind and being gracious. You can't upset the whole culture because it was so ingrained. Let me give you an example. I utterly hate... The thought of abortion. It bothers me so much because to me you're taking a human life. But what I teach in the church is that I love you in spite of where you've been, in spite of what's being done. The culture, our culture in the last 30 years in this country has come to such a point that if you, if you speak about Abortion, it's all ab- about women's rights. It's no longer an issue of a child. It's no longer an issue of a life. It's about women's rights. Women have all rights. People have all rights. But now once it, it, it entails another life, What's this another life there. I can't make you do something because there's another life there. It may not like, you know, that you know, you built your house where you did. But you're another life. But the culture has come to such a point that you have to understand where the culture is. That doesn't mean that in my heart, I have to accept abortion, but I have to be accepting to the people that are around me. And I can't be condemning to the people that are around me. So I hold my feelings inside very often. There are people that are so pro-life. They're like, Jim, why don't you stand up and pound your fist and tell them? Because I love them. Because I love them. And you will see this in families. You will see your children take positions politically, ideologically, religiously. That are very different than your position. But there's people there. And you have to understand that. And there's culture. The culture in this society. You know, we, we may think, you know, we're really great. And, you know, we, we do no wrong. But here we are in an air conditioned room in, in Texas. Why in an air conditioned room? Did you know to air condition this room, methane is being burned to spin a turbine to generate electricity to generate the cooling in this air, of this air. That methane that is being burned is going into CO2 so that to keep you comfortable, CO2 is blowing out in this air that is destroying to this environment. So to keep you happy, the environment is being destroyed. So, if you're really true to your colors, you should say, I've refused to go in any building, but okay, it's a public building, but in my own home, I don't use air conditioning. Nope. I care more about the world than I do about my own self. Altruistic to a T. I'm not going to use air conditioning. Not in my home. I just keep the windows open. You know, that's, that. I just endure. Lots of people did that for a long time. You know, there was a time in, there was no air conditioning. And uh, you talk to the people that fill this room just before you, they will tell you. I talked to old, old alumni from Rice, and they were talking about in the colleges, there was no air conditioning. They just kept the windows open, and the mosquitoes used to fill the rooms all night. I mean, imagine that. So are you inherently evil because you keep your places air conditioned? Are you inherently evil? We can't judge societies Back then, with the standards that we have now. Because people will certainly judge our culture in the future for blowing out all this CO2 into the air that they're going to have to deal with. So, this is, you you see how radical these cultures are, how radical this book is. And it went by way of confession. In other words, Paul was instructing in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he's speaking to people. And he's speaking to people. He says, you know, it's better if you don't marry. He says, but I say this by way of concession, not by command. In other words, Paul conceded certain things not to command them. He says, there are things that are better, but I understand the heart of man. Jesus did this too. So Jesus did this too. In, in uh, When Jesus was teaching in the Gospels in Matthew chapter 19, they came to him and they said, is it rightful to divorce a woman for anything at all? For anything at all? They, some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? In other words, I don't like the way you're looking today. Boom, you're divorced. It's a very strange thing. And Jesus answered to them and and uh, um, he says, what God has joined, let no man separate. And then so they come back at Jesus. They said, why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, so Jesus says to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. So in other words, Moses, being instructed by God, allowed people to divorce, allowed a man to divorce his wife because of the hardness of men's heart, out of concession, not that it was the good thing. So Jesus is even underscoring out of concession, I allow people to do things. Do you see how hard it is in a church? To work in a church. By concession, you have to allow people to do things. And as a parent, one day you're going to be parents. And as your kids start growing up, by concession, you have to allow them to do things that you'd really, they rather didn't. And when they're three-year-olds, you just pick them up and you take them where you want them. But when they're 30 years old, you can't pick them up anymore. They pick you up. Out of concession, he did this. And then Jesus even goes down in that same portion, he says, but he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. In other words, again, Jesus is out of concession saying, there are teachings that I have for you, but not all people can absorb this. They can't all take this thing. And so there are things in life that come at us that Jesus has broken down the barriers in access to God, just broken them down radically. When it comes to when it comes to religion-wise, when it comes to upsetting whole cultures, he carefully and gently broke these things down. And there are things that, that that we go through, and he understands the heart of man. He says, "You can't give it to them all at once." People will say, "Why don't you Why don't you tell the students to do this?" It's because that's not my job to tell them to do this. I just I'm going to show them the word of God. And they have to act upon it. If you really think it's tell them to do this, that's what you want to do, I'll tell you what you do. You go to the Rice campus and you just stand up and they'll all crowd around you and they will love for you to tell them exactly what they ought to do. They're looking for that. Go ahead and do that. You see what I mean? You, you, you can't do that. That's not the way you get this thing going. You present the word of God. And now you allow them to take that Take the word of God where they're at and begin to absorb that and say, Holy Spirit, begin to work in their lives. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, I thank you so much for the truth of your word. I thank you, Lord, for what you have done, for the way that you have liberated classes of people, the Gentiles, to come into the blessings of Abraham, how you have liberated women. <clears throat> And just brought them into a place where You would reveal Yourself first to them. Where You have demonstrated that again and again in the Gospels. Where You showed forth Your heart concerning slavery. And Father, I pray for these young people. That You would work in their lives. Father, that they would understand the truth of Your Word. The truth of Your Word. And cultures change and things will change in the culture that will so upset them but, Father, that they would not lose heart. Father, they they would not lose heart in preaching the truth of the gospel and the love of Christ and understanding what people are able to bear in light of the culture. Father, I pray for your grace to abound on these young people. And, Lord, for those here who do not know you, save their soul, I pray, by the mercies and the grace of God, save their soul. Amen.